Hello, and welcome to The Search. I'm Shahid Jurgen. With this study of 1 Corinthians 4, we're going to be closing out the first major section in this epistle. Chapters 5 and 6 are going to deal with some ethical problems that Chloe's people had reported to Paul about. And then once we get to chapter 7, we'll see the Apostle Paul responding to a letter that the Corinthians had sent to him. But for now, we'll be studying 1 Corinthians 4, and the title of this study is Having the Right Perspective. This is lesson 6 in our series. Of course, having the right perspective helps us all to uh, overcome obstacles and even enables us to pursue and achieve lofty goals. For the Corinthians, Paul had set forth their goal, the ultimate goal of bringing unity back to the congregation, which he talks about in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Now, to achieve this goal, Paul has been diligently working to try to bring the Corinthians back to having the right perspective on a host of issues. In chapter 1, they needed to have the right perspective about the wise and powerful message of the gospel, Christ crucified. In chapter 2, they needed to have the right perspective on where the gospel originated and how it had been revealed and transmitted. And then in chapter 3, they needed to have the right perspective on what it meant to be a congregation of God's people. They were God's field, God's building, and God's temple. Now that chapter 4 is taking center stage for us, Paul is going to teach them about having the right perspective concerning the apostles. See, it seems like there were two schools of thought at Corinth about leaders in general and the apostles in particular. One is that some gave more allegiance to their favorite leader than they should have. This is the famous, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas problem from chapter 1 and verse 12. But another view on the other extreme is that some at Corinth despised the apostles and particularly despised the apostle Paul. So there were two extremes, I am of Paul or I reject Paul. And of course, both of these positions needed to be corrected. Now, Paul has already argued that Jesus is the one to whom allegiance must be given above all others. He mentioned the lowly position of preachers, saying that he and Apollos were just workers in God's field, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. And in chapter 4, the beleaguered apostle is going to discuss again his own pitiful condition, but he's also going to criticize those who had rejected his position as an official representative of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 5. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Servants of Christ and stewards, or those entrusted with the mysteries of God, 
are two expressions used to describe the position of inspired teachers like Paul and Apollos. Servants, in this case, is not the normal word for servant in the New Testament, which is better translated slave. Rather, servant here is a word that means helper or assistant. It's the word that was used to describe John Mark, who was the helper or assistant to Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Now, Paul is continuing to sort of drive home the point that he raised back in chapter 3 when he described himself and other inspired teachers as lowly farmhands. He's reminding us, of course, that there's nothing glorious about what the apostles and prophets of Christ were doing by any kind of worldly standard of measurement, but their work was vitally important for the furtherance of the gospel. Inspired teachers were helpers who aided Christ in advancing his cause. Their work may not seem uh, glamorous, but of course, without it, promoting the kingdom's uh, progress for the kingdom's sake would have been seriously hindered. Now, like helping, Paul describes himself in another lowly position, that of a steward. Wealthy families in the ancient world often employed stewards who served as sort of household managers. The steward managed the family business, supervised the domestic servants, and sort of oversaw the general affairs of the estate. The steward was not the master of the house. In this analogy, we would say Christ is the head of the family, yet the steward's work is vitally important. So Jesus is the leader and inspired teachers are his assistants. Jesus is the master, while inspired teachers are his stewards. And Paul even notes here that the chief characteristic required for a steward is faithfulness, or in this usage, the word's probably better rendered as trustworthiness. Of course, this makes sense. Stewards were entrusted with the master's authority, to carry out his will. But who determines in this scenario the trustworthiness of stewards? Do the other servants of the household get to determine whether or not the steward has been faithful? Does the steward himself decide if he's been faithful in executing his charge? No, of course, the master of the house is the one who judges. And this is, I think, an interesting point as Blomberg explains it. The key task of a steward is faithfulness to his master, not kowtowing to every demand of his underlings. Verse 3 must thus be kept in context. The Corinthians' view of Paul matters little relative to God's view of him. Even his own self-estimation pales against this divine assessment. My conscience is clear in verse four, loosely translates, I'm aware of nothing against myself. So it's not to say that Paul is totally unconcerned with what the Corinthians thought about him, but that opposed to the person whose opinion matters most, uh, their thoughts about Paul mean very little. While Paul acknowledges that there is a day coming when Christ will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart, that time has not yet arrived. God will reward faithful stewards. So Paul doesn't have to worry himself about what others think of him. He knows that the Lord's opinion reigns supreme. Okay, now let's read verses six and seven. Now, 
Brothers and sisters, Paul continues, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you'll not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not, if you did receive it, why do you, excuse me, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Okay. Why do you have that you didn't receive? If you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? The division at Corinth really had almost nothing to do with Paul, Apollos, and Peter. It was rooted in the carnal immaturity of the Corinthian Christians. However, these first four chapters, which are all aimed at reorienting their perspective, have largely revolved around men like Paul and Apollos. When Paul wrote that he had applied these things to himself and Apollos for their benefit, he meant, I'm using me and Apollos as examples here. Of course, these men were laborers, helpers, stewards. All those descriptions we've seen about inspired teachers would apply to them. They were example of those who had dedicated their lives to proclaiming the good news. But really, everything that Paul says about himself and Apollos could be applied to all teachers of the gospel, even those who were at Corinth. In this, in using himself and Apollos, Paul wanted to make sure that the Corinthians rightly understood this expression, do not go beyond what is written. And that that last phrase, what is written, comes from a Greek word that's commonly used to refer to sacred writings or what we might call scripture, in this case, the Old Testament. Now, Paul has already quoted several Old Testament passages in this letter, and he's used the Old Testament to bolster his own arguments against their divisiveness. You can see this in chapter 119, chapter 131, chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. We've got quotes from Isaiah and other places from the Hebrew scriptures. But here, This charge, do not go beyond what is written, is specifically aimed at their pride. Don't go beyond what's written. Then, then you'll not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. So what's the going beyond what's written here? Well, I think Paul is alluding to the general tenor of the Hebrew scriptures, which condemn pride and arrogance. By using himself and Apollos as examples of humble servants, he's able to prove the meaning of those old scriptures which condemn pride and where God elevates the humble. Let's look at these three examples. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but wisdom is with the humble. Proverbs 13.10 says, where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Remember, the Corinthians loved wisdom. They sought wisdom. They just were looking in the wrong places to learn true wisdom. The inspired teachers had it. It was given to them by the Holy Spirit. And if they would just listen to Paul and others, then they would become truly wise. And one more, Psalm 75, verses 4 and 5 says, To the arrogant I say, boast no more, and to the wicked, 
Do not lift up your horns. Horns, a symbol of power. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. The Corinthians needed to learn these scriptures and not to go beyond them if they're going to glean the wisdom and counsel that God has put in them. They need to ask themselves some important reflective questions about why they thought they were so superior to others. And we have to, we have to be honest and admit that self-examination is no easy task. But the apostles are challenging us. Paul is challenging them to try anyway, to look inwardly and do it for the sake of unity. The next paragraph picks up in verse 8 and we'll read through verse 13. Already you have all you want, Paul declares. Already you have become rich. You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we may also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Powerful words here. The, Corinthian, the Corinthians boasted in men. They bragged about their own refinement. They gloated in their spiritual gifts. They thought that they were reigning. They didn't need the apostles anymore. They believed they had reached the, the heights of spiritual maturity, and they didn't need counsel from anyone. Paul says, I wish that was true but it's not. This is how Morris explains Paul's retort in verse eight. The Corinthians felt themselves secure and in want of nothing, a dangerous state. Far from the Corinthians having progressed in the Christian faith, they were approximating to the Stoic ideal of self-sufficiency. The Corinthians thought that they had attained a position to which neither Paul nor the apostles dared lay claim. Paul expresses the wish that they really were in the royal position they imagined. Then perhaps he and his associates might be linked with them in this splendor. The construction Paul employs implies the wish has not been fulfilled. Would that you do reign, though in fact you do not, is the sense of it. Now, after mocking and weeping over the Corinthians' inflated view of themselves, Paul proceeded with a reflection on what true spiritual piety looks like. And again, he has an example right at home with the apostles. The apostles were not living lives of wealth or ease. They were lacking necessities like food, clothing, shelter. 
They were making great sacrifices for the benefit of others. They endured terrible hardships and persecution. And how did the Corinthians show their appreciation for what the apostles were doing? They waged war against one another. They set aside the the blessed unity that comes through Jesus Christ, which they had received through Paul's own proclamation of the gospel to them. Now, it needs to be emphasized here that when Paul talks about all that the apostles and, and that he was enduring, he's not complaining. In fact, for Paul, Christians attain their most Christ likeness when they are suffering. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. He wrote in Philippians 3 and verse 10, that which the apostles suffered, it was ordained of God. He says that it was God who put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. The imagery here is of the the victory parades of conquering Roman generals. After the soldiers marched the city streets to the praise of the gathered crowds, their prisoners of war would follow behind. And these captives were appointed to die as spectacle in the Roman arenas. Now, who was the audience of this morbid procession that was being uh, displayed right here. Well, Paul says that the apostles have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to humans. So there's a cosmic assembly gathered here to watch those the world has deemed as foolish, weak, and dishonorable. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the Corinthian Christians remain apart from these righteous martyrs because to the Corinthians, the pitiful condition of the apostles was beneath them. The irony is, of course, that most of the Corinthians were not wealthy. They couldn't fraternize with society's elite, but they were so puffed up about how they perceived themselves, they became blind to the bitter reality of their own worldliness. However, even though many of the Corinthians were of a lower class, they still had far more than the apostles. The Corinthians had food to eat, houses to live in, and clothes on their back. The apostles, Paul said, had become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Now, Paul may be exaggerating here a bit, but while the Corinthians boasted in many things, Paul wanted to remind them what true sacrificial service to Christ looks like. The apostles were merely emulating Jesus Christ, their Lord. Isaiah the prophet said about the suffering servant long ago, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. And so finally, Paul is going to conclude his lengthy case against division. He began by reminding the Corinthians that it was Christ and only Christ who died for them. 
that the message of the cross may be foolish to the world, but through Jesus, God is bringing salvation to all those who believe. The good news wasn't something that humans just concocted. They made up in their own mind. No, this was revealed by the Holy Spirit to inspired teachers and those who were promoting Jesus Christ and him crucified. They weren't doing it for glory and for power and for wealth. They were servants who were living out the life of their Lord and laboring for his people. And that included the Corinthians themselves. And so why should these inspired teachers be overly elevated? Well, they shouldn't. That's a position for Christ. But should they be ignored and debased as some of the Corinthians were doing? No. No, they should be respected and admired for their work. And so finally, Paul brings this section to a close with this very emotional final plea, verses 14 through 21. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. (laughs) Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Now, I don't think we should conclude based on the criticism and sometimes even occasional sarcasm that Paul has employed that he wanted to shame or humiliate the Corinthians. Now, Paul saw his relationship with them as a spiritual father. His desire was to lovingly yet earnestly admonish them. Fee gives this explanation of what the word admonish means. He says it has the primary connotation of trying to have a corrective influence on someone, an admonition that is designed to correct while not provoking or embittering. Such correction may include warning, but it also implies counsel and appeal. And that's what Paul is doing. He's putting himself in the position of a guide or a mentor. He wants the Corinthians to follow his example. He wants them to rid themselves of their pride and accept this rebuke, this correction that has come from the Lord. Man, it takes a whole lot of humility to admit that you've been wrong and that you need to make a change. And I think Paul is really hoping here that he can find that humility in their hearts. Now, Paul tells us that he decided to send Timothy to them. Timothy, we know, was a young and capable co-worker of the Apostle Paul. His mission was going to be to remind them of Paul's standard teaching. In fact, verse 17 is the first of four statements that are going to be peppered throughout this letter where Paul speaks of the universal faith of all believers that he promoted everywhere he went. So here in chapter four, he says, I teach them everywhere in every church. 
In 717, he says, this is my rule in all the churches. Chapter 11, verse 16 says, this is how things are done in all of God's churches. And finally, in chapter 14, verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. That which Paul preached in Corinth wasn't any different than the message he delivered across the Roman Empire. Timothy was dispatched to Corinth simply to remind and reinforce Paul's teaching. Remember, Paul had laid the foundation, which is Christ Jesus. And now Timothy is going to simply reinforce and maybe build up upon that foundation. And this same message is what Paul preaches to congregations today when his letters are read, explained, and applied. And of course, the ancient standard set by the apostle is what must always guide believers. Timothy first joined Paul back during the second missionary journey. We read about this in in Acts 16. Paul was initially alone when he arrived in Corinth, which was on that same tour, but Silas and Timothy soon joined him to support the work. Acts 18 verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. And I bring this up because it's important to remember that Timothy was there. Okay, Timothy was there on the ground with Paul when the Corinthian congregation or congregations were first being formed. He was there during that 18-month period that Paul spent teaching the word of God among them, Acts 18.11. He was there when the company had to say goodbye to the Corinthians to sail on to their next location. And so he was there and earned during that time and since then, of course, and before then as well, this reputation of being Paul's trustworthy son whom he loved. So Timothy was an ideal candidate to go back to Corinth and to reinforce Paul's message. Paul learned that a contingency of the Corinthian of the Corinthian Christians did not believe that he would ever return to Corinth. I'm sure you learned this from some of Chloe's people. And this caused that faction, this very anti-Paul faction, to sort of be puffed up with pride. And they thought, well, we're the supreme authority over this church. Now, Paul who? He's gone. He's never coming back. We're in charge. Everyone has to listen to us now. And I love that in Paul's reply, he basically says, the only thing that's going to stop me from coming back is divine intervention. If the Lord's will is that I never return. Otherwise, I am returning. And when I come, everybody better remember that talk is cheap because the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power or of a manifestation or demonstration of power. Now, Paul does not often use the expression kingdom of God, which we find so frequent, so frequently in the Gospels, the, the, the synoptics, or the kingdom of heaven as Matthew uses it. Thistleton defines the kingdom of God as the active, dynamic reigning of God as sovereign. And he goes on to say that what Paul wants to see when he arrives is not whether this or that rhetoric prevails. It's not about how fancy of an argument you can spin, but what manifests the reality of God in Christ and his sovereign deeds. In other words, Paul is expecting to see some fruits of their repentance. He wants them to 
manifest their allegiance to Christ with actual acts of spiritual maturity, with evidence that the, the Holy Spirit is working in them and through them, and that the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in their lives. He wants to see that the cycle of strife and division has been broken and that the cross has reemerged as the centerpiece of their unity and of their relationships with one another. He wants to see, has the gospel of Christ really transformed you or is it all talk? He says, we'll see. We'll see when I arrive. After four chapters of sometimes pretty stinging rebuke, as Paul has tried to reorient their perspective about all these issues, he just sort of poses this kind of sobering question. He says, what do you prefer? What kind of visit do you want? Do you want me to come with more correction, the rod of discipline? Or will you embrace me so that in love and with a gentle spirit, we can once again work cooperatively? Paul was going to Corinth and they would decide what that encounter would be like. Would they yield to the authority of an apostle? Would the meeting be a time of healing or confrontation? What would Paul need to do when he got to Corinth? Well, time would tell. The first four chapters of this letter are culminating all together into one grand argument against division. It all starts with Christ crucified, God's wise and powerful answer to sectarianism, strife, and division. Christ crucified is taught by inspired teachers who rely on God's revelation, and these divine truths taught through inspired teachers are received by spiritual people who allow that message to guide them each and every day. Paul says, listen, the church doesn't belong to any one of us. It's God's field. It's God's building. It's God's temple. And inspired teachers are neither to be overly elevated, nor are they to be ignored. They possess divine authority, but they're merely God's workers, God's helpers, and God's stewards. 1 Corinthians 1 through 4 are aimed at giving these sectarian Corinthians the right perspective. They needed to change their minds about Christ, the wisdom and power of God manifested in the gospel, the church, the apostles and prophets, and the appropriate attitude Christians must have in order to achieve and maintain unity. The way the Corinthians viewed the apostles versus the way they viewed themselves was a deep-rooted problem, and ultimately it manifests in the schismatic fracturing that we see in Corinth, having the right perspective matters. And if God is looking into our hearts today, we should be asking ourselves, what perspective does he see in us? Does he see that we are people whose love and devotion for Christ supersedes all, even our identity as members of a particular group of people? Does he see that we are rallying together behind the banner of the crucified and risen Messiah? Or does he see in us pride and superiority complexes, selfishness, and boasting? If Paul were to visit congregations today, would he be coming with a rod of discipline or would he be coming in love and with a gentle spirit. 
Of course, that all depends on how the message of the cross is received and lived out by every member of the body. The decision is ours, just as it was for Corinth to humble ourselves and receive apostolic correction or to rebel and doom ourselves and our congregations. So let us choose wisely and may God guide us in every step of the way as we endeavor not only to have the right perspective, to think about the cross and its centrality in our lives, but also to live it out and to be people who help to bring the power of the kingdom of God more fully on the earth, just as it is in heaven. God bless you. Thank you for joining me in this study, and I'll see you next time.